Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. We're going to keep on going in the series that Pastor Dave has been in. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3. And let's pray together and then we'll look in the Word. God, thank you for your mercy and love. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the end of a school year and an opportunity that comes in summer to serve you together through things like impact, uh, other opportunities that we will have. God, as we look in your word today, we'll look at um, just really some folks that had just kind of dialed it in in their city and in their church. And I think there can, can kind of be... Uh, a mindset sometimes as we get to the end of a school year or if we're just really, really used to being in the body where we can kind of do the same thing and just dial it in. When the reality is we've got a great opportunity to live every day in relationship with you, to grow in knowing you, to understand who you are and what you're about more and more through your word, through time with your people, and on mission with you. So God, as we Look at the church at Sardis, Lord. Help us to uh, be warned by the way that they lived and to be shaped um, by the challenge you would give us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Revelation chapter 3, the Bible says, this is what John got got to write down, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, in each of these... And each of these churches that you look at, there's a different message. And usually there's an encouragement that comes. And usually um, there's a warning that comes to the churches. And in Sardis, um, there's an interesting thing going on. The city had been a great city, um, but it was in decline. It had been kind of the maybe the New York City of its day, um, but things were not the same. And all of the luxurious living that people had done had kind of led to this moral decadence. And things were not going well. There's one solid industry in the city. It was a clothing industry. They made wool for white garments. And we, we need to remember that um, because that's really the only thing they had going for them. And the writer of Revelation speaks to this to them as we look at it this morning. Two things we'll see when we look at the church at Sardis I think Dave has kind of talked to you guys, and you can see it over and over and over in Revelation 1 and Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Number one, Jesus is powerful, and He's going to show Himself to be powerful. But number two, He will show Himself to be personal. He will show Himself to be personal. He shows Himself to be powerful in this. When He starts out writing, He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which would have been the seven churches. They were to be shining like bright lights. He's powerful. He's the one who has the seven spirits of God. He's risen from the dead and He's speaking to them with authority. So He's going to show Himself first to be powerful, but then again He'll show Himself to be personal a little bit later in the chapter. Psalm 62 says, there are two things I know about you. Number one, you're strong. And number two, you're loving. So we're going to jump in and we're going to talk about what are his concerns. That's the first thing we want to look at for the church at Sardis. So look in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1 actually. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up then and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So he lists three concerns. Number one, they're dead, but they, they think they're alive. You have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. And number two, um, their works are incomplete. And then number three, they need to wake up and repent. So let's first talk about they're dead. They're dead. They have appearance of being alive, but they're dead. When I was a teenager, a movie came out called Weekend at Bernie's. And Weekend at Bernie's, some of you have seen, um, Weekend at Bernie's is about two guys, and they, they take this guy who's dead. And they take him with them to a, a beach party and all these different things and try to make it look like he's alive. Um, and it's, I mean, it's great because he gets slammed into walls and acts like he doesn't feel it because he's obviously dead, right? So he doesn't feel it. Um, and at the end, they get exposed because um, they've been carrying around a dead guy, if I remember that right. And so the, the writer of Revelation says, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. And that, I don't know if that is great concern to you, but that's a huge concern for me. And the reason it is, is because when the Bible talks about people being dead, it talks about them being apart from Christ. So Ephesians 2 says about us before we were in Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And it says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions or our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. So what he's saying to the church in Sardis is, you guys have the appearance of, of Christians, but you're really not, many of you. And I don't... I don't know if you grew, have grown up at TBC or if you have kind of grown at another church and, and more recently come here, but I grew up in a church and one of the things you would hear in our church often was once saved, always saved. That means if you were saved, you couldn't lose your salvation. And that was true. That's correct. No one, if you're in Christ, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But let me tell you kind of what that turned into in my church. It wasn't really once saved, always saved. It was... Once prayed, always saved. And what would happen is at the end of every service, there would be a time where the whole church would stand up and the pastor would invite people to come forward and pray a prayer and sign a card. Now, a lot of people came to faith in Jesus that way. 
So that's not a wrong way to do it, but there's a danger in any way you invite people to Christ. There are pros and cons. What happened is people would walk an aisle, sign a card, and they would go out of that church, and their life would never change. They would never really enter a relationship with Jesus. They'd live for themselves how they wanted. Their life was never transformed by the power of God. And what they'd say, well, I mean, I prayed and I, I signed the card. And so I know, I mean, I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Which there's really not a lot of biblical evidence for that idea. I've got a, a cousin that I love that when he was 13 years old, he walked an aisle and he signed a card. And something happened about three weeks later that made him mad. And he hasn't gone back into a church for about 40 years other than when his mom would just beg and beg and beg. But he doesn't like the church. He doesn't care much for God. And he'll say that out loud. But he walked that aisle and prayed that prayer. So he's just sure, well, I mean, he's got to let me in, right? And so the, the writer of Revelation says to the church at Sardis, be careful. You have an appearance of being alive, but you're really dead. And so what I'd say to you today, and a question you need to ask yourselves, and we need to am I really in Christ? Have I really come to know Jesus? Now that doesn't mean that when you know Jesus, that you're never going to sin, that you're going to have it checked out perfectly, that you're never going to struggle. If that were the case, I, I just wouldn't be in Christ. You, my daughter's here, you could ask her. I mess up a lot. But, but we've got to ask Am I just playing a game? Have I just said I'm alive? Have I acted this way because of my parents, because of my friends, because of pressure? Or do I know Christ? Do I know Christ? The second thing he says is that your works are not complete in the sight of God. Your works are not complete in the sight of God. Well, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because our works don't save us, but then our, our works, what God is doing in us, is kind of evidence of how we've been saved. He's just saying, you're not living like you're walking with Jesus. He's going to talk about people who are clothed in white walking with Him. But He's, he's saying, you're not living like you're walking with Jesus. I, I read a story several years ago about a guy named Mike DeCavo. And Mike DeCavo was from a small college, and he was a cross-country runner at this college. And he made it into the NCAA national tournament. Now, he wasn't going to win... He wasn't going to win the final race, but it was just a privilege to be there. And so they map out the course, and they have a walk through the day before, and they see the course, and everybody walks through. And so Mike is just kind of running in the middle of the pack in the race, and he's going, and there's a place where the road forks. And the road forks to the left, and that's where the course goes. And off to the right, there's another area, but that's not the course, and it's clearly marked. But the leader, the first guy in the race, goes the wrong way. He goes the wrong way, and then the second guy goes the wrong way, and people just start following them the wrong way. And Mike sees what's happening, and he knows it, and he goes the right way. And so he's running, and he's looking back, and there's nobody behind him. So there are people maybe behind him who could have passed him. They're all going the wrong way. So Mike's running, and he's about to win the NCAA championship. And about a quarter of a mile before he gets to the finish line... All these guys come right back in front of him, back onto the course. And they cross the finish line before him. Now, Sports Illustrated wrote in this article, and the NCAA, such a brilliant institution full of integrity, just said, you know what, since everybody ran the wrong way, except this one guy, we'll just give the prize to the guys who finished first. 
And Sports Illustrated, I remember them saying in this article, you know, if it were up to us, we'd give the prize to the guy who really won because he chose to run the right way. And you'll live in a culture, and sometimes maybe even in a church culture, where folks are not going to run the right way. They'll get off course, and, and really if an influencer gets off course, then sometimes a lot of folks will just run right after them. But you want to be people who walk the right way. You want to be people who walk the right way because he who began a good work in you, if you're in Christ, he will bring it to completion. And then the third thing that he says, his concern is, is that they need to wake up or they need to repent. They need to wake up or they need to repent. And what he's really calling the church to is what the Bible calls godly sorrow. It's what the Bible calls godly sorrow. So Paul talks about this when he's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says this to them. Um, He said, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that this letter has grieved you just for a while, as it is I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you felt a godly sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow produces death. So he goes on and he says this, Godly sorrow produces in you an eagerness to clear yourself, an anger over your sin, a fear of God, a longing for things to be made right. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. You had godly sorrow. And so the writer of Revelation is calling to the church in Sardis and he's saying, You need to have godly sorrow. You need to have godly sorrow. Now, my wife and I have four kids. We've got Maddie, who's in ninth grade. We've got Nate, who's ten. We've got Jeb, who's four. And then we have Mac, who is 16 months. And Jeb and Mac are adopted. Uh, Jeb we adopted from Rwanda. And Mac we adopted from just northwest of Rwanda in a place called Austin. And we... um. Jeb, when we got him, he was seven months old and he weighed 13 pounds, so he was really, really tiny. But when we brought him into our home, he started eating and hasn't stopped. And so now Jeb is four years old and he's tall and he weighs 60 pounds. I see many of you, I believe, he could take today. And some of you girls as well, okay? So Jeb likes to play with Mac. Um, But Jeb can just turn the wrong way and he'll produce enough wind to knock Mac over. But sometimes Jeb wants to wrestle with Mac. So the other day, Mac's got something that Jeb wants, and Mac um, is trying to climb on a table because that's what he likes to do at 16 months to get away from Jeb. And Jeb just grabbed him by the back of the shirt, jerks him off, slams him down the ground, and so Mac cries. And so Jeb doesn't really know or understand his own strength, so I'm not really, really angry because Mac doesn't look like he's hurt. He's crying more scared than than hurt, and when you're on kid number four, if you're not going to the emergency room, you're kind of happy, okay? So I said, Jeb, listen, buddy, you can't do that to Mac. You've hurt him. You need to tell him you're sorry. And so Jeb looked over at him, and he just walks over to him, and he goes, I'm sorry, Mackie, and grabs the toy and just walks off, right? So we wouldn't really call that godly sorrow, right? So y'all can pray for Jeb. here's, Here's the idea, though. When, when we have godly sorrow, 
We're not upset primarily because we've been caught. We're not upset primarily because there's going to be a consequence for us that's painful. We're not upset because we're going to be embarrassed. But we're saddened because we've grieved the heart of God. We've caused pain to those around us. And so the writer of Revelation says to the church at Sardis, hey, wake up and repent. Look, you've hurt yourself. You've offended holy God. And you're harming those around you. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. So he has concerns for them, but then he also has a commendation for them. He has a commendation for them. He says, yet you still have a few, verse 4, a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And to the one who conquers, he'll be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name in the book of life. I think this is important for a couple of reasons. One, because I think Jesus is being personal with the church at Sardis. He's shown Himself to be powerful, but He's being personal. They make garments out of wool. They make white garments. They know what it is for a garment to be clean. And they know what it is for a garment to be soiled or dirty. You guys understand what soiled means, right? That's just gross, okay? But we'll talk about it a little bit. He says there's some who haven't soiled their garments. It's, it's important because he's being personal and speaking to them where they are, but it's also important because when the Bible talks about Christ's return, it talks about Him coming back in white. When it talks about His people from all the nations gathered to worship Him, they're dressed in white robes and fine linen. And so when he says there's some who have not soiled their garments, he's saying that they look different than the world. They're not stained. When I was 12 years old, my, I had an aunt and uncle that were just a great aunt and uncle really all my life, as long as they were alive. They were amazing people to my family. And when I was 12, my sister was 16 or 17. This would have been 1986. She would have been 16. And then we had a three-year-old cousin um, that was a different little niece of this aunt and uncle. And they said, hey, we're taking you guys to Disney World this summer, which we loved, and they didn't invite our parents, which was all the better. Um... And so we go to Disney World, and my sister and I are having a great time, and our three-year-old cousin, this is back before you had to sit in car seats, right? So she's just all over us in the back of this car, all the way to Florida. And there just comes a point if you're driving to Florida, have you ever driven to Florida with a three-year-old? Or you just want them to, I mean, shut up, right? And so we've got, my aunt was just a snack queen, and so my three-year-old cousin, she wanted these, oat granola bars. So when she just start talking and say, I want a granola bar, I'm 12, my sister's 16, we're just giving her a granola bar. So on the way from Texas to Florida, she probably is a three-year-old over two days, I would guess eight, 18 to 20 of these granola bars, because we just want her to be quiet, right? If she won't cry, we're okay. So she filled her body with oats, which from what I understand have a lot of fiber in them. So we're going to Disney World. My sister's got this new outfit, and it's the 80s, so she's got big hair, a big yellow with white polka dot bow, white and yellow shirt, bright yellow shorts. Not mustard yellow, bright yellow. And we're on this rail system at Disney World, and we're going, and my sister said, man, she feels so hot. My cousin's sitting on her lap. She just feels hot. And... Right as we get up, 
to get off and go into Disney World, my little cousin goes, I think I got to go to the bathroom. And we look over, and my sister stands up in her new bright yellow shorts, yellow and white shirt, remember, big bow, big hair. And there's this section right here on her shorts that they're not really bright yellow anymore. My cousin just starts running towards Mickey, and it's very obvious that she has soiled her garments. Well, it's, it's disgusting, right? So I'm, I'm 12, and I'm just thinking, hey, I mean, no big deal, it'll dry, and we're at Disney World, let's go. But we had to stop everything. I mean, it took like at least 15 minutes out of my day. It was awful, right? So we got to get my sister. Now my sister, she was thinking she was all great and cool with her big hair and her big bow, and now she's got on Mickey wear, because you buy what you can when you got that on your shorts, right? My cousin gets clean, and we look back on that and laugh, but I remember she just kept soiling her garments and soiling her garments and soiling her garments. And I, I remember we're driving back, and we're about 10 miles from, uh, from my aunt and uncle's house, and... The other thing that my cousin wanted was baby wipes. She liked wiping her face with baby wipes. And I'll just remember, we're driving along, and she just goes, I want a baby wipe, and my uncle just says, Hey, you used all those about five days ago. See, it's a vivid picture that we can understand real, real easily. And what the writer of Revelation says is that there are some, it's not that they're getting it perfect. But there are some who haven't soiled their garments. Their life doesn't look like the world looks. It's, it's not splattered with filth. They're, they're still tracking with me. They're still walking with me. Well, just before Paul told the church in Corinth about godly sorrow, he kind of warned them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We always talk about that in, in a dating context, but it's not just about dating. It's really about that your life, as you love these people, as you get along with them, as you're friendly with them, as you care for them, as you're kind to them, your life ought to look different. Why? Because Christ is in you and the gospel's impacting you. It's not because you're better. It's not because you're getting it right. It's not because you're trying harder. All, all those reasons will just lead to soiled garments that are soiled with pride, with arrogance. But because the gospel's at work in you, he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's because God is alive in you. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, because we have these promises that He will be our God and we will be His people, because we have the promise from the Lord Almighty that He will be our Father and we will be His sons and daughters, because of this, it says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He says, walk in a way that your garment looks white, that it really looks like you're walking with Jesus. So he says, they've not soiled their garments, and then he kind of goes on, and, and the paraphrase of what he says is that they walk with him, they're in relationship with him. It's not that they know who Jesus is and they can spout off the answers. They're actually really walking with Him. They're actually really walking with Him. Now, how many of you have heard of a guy named Bono? Anyone? Right. He's an iconic rock figure. Maybe you have. I don't know. How many of you know Bono? No? Anybody know the words to a U2 song? You should probably lay down this little airy One Direction stuff and get some real music in your lives, okay? Um, so, you know some of the things he said. You've probably even seen on the web testimonies he's given about Christ, and you know who he is. But if you walk up to your friends on Monday and go, hey, I know Bono, and we're like this, they're going to laugh at you, right? And you just go, well, I don't know Bono, actually. But I know his sister... Well, no, you don't have a relationship with Him. You're, you're not in fellowship with Him. Even though you know a lot of what He said. And what He's saying is that these are people who are actually in relationship with Me. Their lives look different than the lives of those around them because they know Me. And I wonder if some of you, you know the answers, you know all the right things to say about Jesus. And the, the reality is though, and I think especially for those of you who are about to graduate, if you just know the answers but don't know Him, it will become very clear about three hours after you get to college. It will become very clear. So you want to know, am I really walking with Him? Am I really in relationship with Him? What you guys are going to do is discuss a couple of questions at your tables now. I'll come back up and then we'll have a couple more questions. So take about the next five, ten minutes. Look at 1 John 2, 1-17 through 17, and look at these first two questions that will pop up for you. All right, let's come back together and look at the text for just a little bit more. We're going we're gonna to look at the next couple of verses really quick and then have some more questions. So let's look in verse, let's look in verse 4 and we're going to jump to the next slide because he says that to each of these churches, to the one who overcomes or to the one who conquers, here's what I will do. So he says in verse 5 of Revelation 3, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he says two things. Number one, I'm going to write your name in this book. It's the book of life. He's saying, you are mine. I'm going to claim you as my own. I'm going to write your name down. And I'll give you eternal life is basically the message he's getting. There was a time when Jesus sent his disciples out before his resurrection, early on in their ministry. He had trained them and he sent them out to do ministry. And when they came back, they were telling him all these amazing things that were happening. People were repenting, people were being healed, they were casting out demons. And then Jesus makes this 
kind of strange statement to his disciples, because wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be cool to see? But in Luke 10, 20, he says, Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. Don't rejoice that demons are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in the book of life. This is why you rejoice that you're in me, that I've called you my own. So he says to the one who overcomes, and it's really just an evidence of that. So the one who overcomes, his name's going to be written. It's the idea that the grace that has saved this person has kept this person. So he says, number one, I'll write your name in my book. And number two, I'll confess you before my Father. I'll confess you before my Father. So in 1 John 2, where you, where you read, it starts by saying this. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the covering, the propitiation for our sins, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So he says, I'll confess you before my Father. I will be your advocate. He's really just saying you're, you're, you're one of my own, and I'm going to make that known to the Father. See, he was talking with some Jews who were arguing with him about whether he was the Christ in John 10. And he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he says, my sheep know my voice, they follow me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, my Father is greater than all. And no one's going to take them out of His hand. So the promises He's making to these who overcome, just like the promise He makes in John 10, a promise is only as valuable as the person who makes it. A promise is only as valuable as the person who who makes it. So you can know basically if a politician promises you something, it's not going to happen, right? You can understand that. You can understand that. But if, if I said to you, hey, if you do this and this and this, I promise you I'll give you a million dollars. That'd be a really nice promise of me, but I don't have a million dollars, so I can't do that. But let's just say the CEO of Tom's Shoes said, Hey, if you do this and this and this, I promise I'll give you a million dollars. I mean, if he told me that, I'd be interested because maybe he could pull that off. He might have a million dollars, right? He might have more than a million dollars. See, a promise is only as valuable as a person who makes it. So the guy who says, I'll give you eternal life and no one can take you out of my hand, rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And so... More than I look at this text and think, man, that makes me really afraid. I hope I'm actually walking with Jesus. More more than that makes me really nervous. Man, I want to check off boxes and do everything right because that's really not what Christianity is about. But it's that, that the one who died for me and rose from the dead has said, he'll give me eternal life. That really makes me want to walk with him. That really makes me want to know him. That really makes me want to follow Him. I think that's why Paul said, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Because He had been brought from death to life. 
So I hope that your motivation to be an overcomer would be this, that Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, if you're mine, you're mine forever. You're mine forever. So overcome. So overcome. You guys are going to have a couple more questions. You're going to look back at 1 John 2. You're going to have a couple more questions, and then you'll be done. You've got about nine minutes. So you can be done at about... 12.15, so you guys can see those questions from First John 2, dive into those questions, and then when you're done, you're dismissed.